like to spend more time in God's Word? Does your tight schedule prevent you from sitting down with your Bible? Do you sometimes find the Bible confusing? The Word of the Lord Endures Forever is a daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study with the church, past and present. It's hosted by Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod Pastor Will Whedon. Learn more at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. An evangelical and Catholic podcast, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Welcome, listeners, to The Editor's Desk, our regular podcast with First Things contributors. And I have with me today Matthew Schmitz, founding editor of Compact Magazine, and not to be discounted, a former senior editor at First Things. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew. Thanks for having me, Rusty. Well, I'm interested in this piece in the April 2023 issue on gay marriage, which I think is just, was very helpful. How gay marriage changed America. I mean, wasn't gay marriage supposed to crown the happy normalization of homosexuality? Absolutely. It's, it's most eloquent advocate and most influential advocate, Andrew Sullivan, presented gay marriage with some justification as a conservative project. Obviously, you know, that formulation seems surprising to social conservatives, but Sullivan spoke out of and to a gay culture that had a much more kind of antinomian, anarchic ethic, and he hoped that marriage would be a way of disciplining and challenging homosexual desire into the kind of stabilizing bounds of marriage. That's how he presented it, at least on its face. It became a little more complex, though, when you looked more closely at what Sullivan had in mind. It was a kind of taking taking gay culture out of the bohemian and into the bourgeois, as I recall, from that era. Yeah, that was part of it. I mean, Sullivan also thought that, you know, just, just as you know, marriage had something to teach gays, it had things to teach them about commitment, about you know, regularity. He thought that gays had something to teach straights, had something to contribute to marriage, you know, an op- a certain openness, a certain flexibility, and where he describes that in his book, Virtually Normal, it's not entirely spelled out what he means. But I, I think you know, the, the power of, his, of Sullivan's argument came from the fact that he was speaking to a world in which it, it wasn't just that gays were gaining greater recognition and prestige. They were gaining that recognition and prestige in part because sexual mores and mating habits among straights, so to speak, had changed radically too. So you know, gay men are notably promiscuous, but gay acceptance increased not in a, in a culture where you know heterosexual coupling was taking place exclusively within marriage. It increased in a place where heterosexuals were getting married later, were getting married less, were having more sexual partners. And so the normalization of homosexuality was able to occur in part because there was a kind of, or as I put in the PCM, you know, the normal Queerness was normalized as the normal was being queered in a certain way. There's no, I mean, I remember being in the battles over sexual ethics in the Episcopal Church in the 1990s, and I could see that normalizing homosexuality was a way of, I don't know, I guess underlining the sexual revolution and saying we're we're in favor of the relaxation of sexual norms for heterosexuals. So it, it kind of functioned in a very powerful symbolic way. And you suggest that something similar is the case broadly culturally in America. 
that the normalization, that gay marriage, I guess it, it just, if that's okay, then lots of changes in heterosexual norms are okay too. Marriage is a public institution in a very you know, particular way. You, it, it demands social recognition of, of a sexual relationship. It, it's not just, oh, well, who's your boyfriend? Who's your girlfriend? You know, who your spouse is, things like, you know, as was pointed out by gay marriage advocates, you know, inheritance, taxes, hinges on that, but also forms of social recognition. So enshrining gay marriage as a constitutional right uh, was really a way of transforming our culture. And one of the most important and inevitable effects it had was the marginalization of religious and conservative opponents of gay marriage who you know, had been, and to some extent, in a much diminished way, still were important elements of the American elite. And gay marriage really advanced the marginalization of those forces. Yeah, let's dig into that, because I think that's a, it's an interesting piece of social analysis. It's not just sexual politics, but it's more broadly the cultural politics of America. I think you write, a radicalization of the left prompted a radicalization of the right. So, well, what do you mean then? So let's say Obergefell, and then, or even before Obergefell, there was the California Prop 8 campaign, which was to define marriage as between a man and a woman. And you say that that was really the when the cancel culture actually came into the mainstream. Right. So, you know, I cite Sasha Isenberg, journalist and author of A History of Gay Marriage, who has argued, I think quite convincingly, that gay marriage gave us cancel culture. And what he means by that is you know, gay marriage is a place where the current methods of applying a kind of mass disperse social media pressure to unpopular views, to popular individuals, that's where that was pioneered. Obviously, there has always been social pressure. There's always been ostracism communities. Have already have always imposed a cost on certain viewpoints, but I think what distinguishes cancel culture from those previous forms of ostracism is you know, the rise of social media and the combination of social media with activist pressure, and then corporate compliance. And you really see that first with gay marriage, Prop A, where people who had donated money to the campaign, you know, their information was obtained from public records. And then publicized, it was put on a hate map, so to speak. This was called a hate map. So then anyone, so, you know, in my, you know, if I were living in a small town and I didn't like the fact that my neighbor was voting for the populist party, I could, you know, kind of hi hat him on the street. But that's very distinct from today where I can actually, you know, send a tweet about someone who lives hundreds of miles away or, send an email to their employer. It's, it's just much, much easier. And it goes beyond old, older forms like the letter writing campaign. So I think that's what's distinctive about cancel culture. Also, it's notable that in April, Gregory Angelo, who is the former director of the Log Cabin Republicans, the Republican gay lobby, wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal titled, I Helped Make Corporations Woke and I Regret It. In that piece, he says, if the gay rights movement in the U.S. didn't ignite the trend of corporations taking stance on cultural issues, it was definitely a prime accelerant. And he describes how you know, that playbook has been extended far beyond the gay marriage cause and how he's become quite uncomfortable with it. So there, there's a strong connection there between 
cancel culture and gay marriage. And I think it's notable, uh, as I say in the piece, Rusty, because a lot of the current uh, opponents of cancel culture, including some who are very brave and who I admire a great deal, tend to connect it with you know, illiberalism or campus radicalism. But it's worth noting that it was actually incubated by people who were working on what's really a kind of centrally liberal cause, a cause embraced today by all liberals, gay marriage. I've long thought that gay marriage was way more significant than than its proponents would allow. It was just, a, you know, they presented it. I remember the bumper sticker or the slogan, if you don't like gay marriage, then don't get gay married. As in, this is just a change. It's just opening up marriage for a few small sector of the population is otherwise excluded. But it was always obvious to me that you had to restructure society at every level to accommodate men marrying men and women marrying women. And so it's not surprising to me that the worst excesses of our revolutionary age were incubated by the gay rights movement since it has such a fundamental, you know, change the DNA of society. I mean, marriage is really fundamental to the DNA of society. So your argument is it accelerated polarization. And it accelerated by, as you point out, I mean, if you disapprove of homosexuality, homosexual acts, but it's not really, you don't have to take a public stance, but gay marriage sort of made everybody, it became a loyalty test. And if you were unwilling to sign the loyalty oath, then you could not be a, a professor in an Ivy League school, for instance. I mean, maybe they exist, but you could not be hired as a young faculty member at, a, well, at any university, really, other than a few recusant Christian universities. So if we take that as a kind of example, and you run it all up and down society, by the time you get to 2023, a person with socially conservative views, really, it's very difficult for that person to actually play a role in America's elites. Is that, is that the argument? Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, Rusty, it actually goes well beyond elite institutions. As I mentioned in the piece in 2023, Jacob Kersey, a police officer in Georgia, was placed on leave after writing on Facebook, God designed marriage. Marriage refers to Christ in the church. That's why there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. That, that statement is one that, you know, most traditional believers would, would sign on to, but but that was enough to get him off a police force in Georgia. So it's, it goes well beyond elite institutions. In the piece, I discuss anxieties that are frequently expressed about trends on the right. And you could say that these you know, trends that are perceived to be very disturbing are summed up in two words, populism and illiberalism. Mm -hmm. And I think it's helpful to think about both those terms through the lens of gay marriage. When you start to exclude people with religious or conservative viewpoints, not just from elite institutions, but from all important institutions in society, that's going to have one very, very immediate effect. It's going to turn the minds of those people in an anti-institutional direction. That may not always be a healthy instinct on the part of those people. You know, populism's anti-institutionalism, anti-institutionalism can often go too far, can often be counterproductive, but it's utterly implausible to think that you're going to have religious Americans highly invested in our institutions when they're being excluded from them systematically. So we need to, we need to think very seriously about your know, populism on the right. We need to not view it as something that simply results from an orange man descending a golden escalator. It has deeper causes in our politics, and these aren't going away so long as 
there you know is a kind of religious philosophical test being imposed on people who want to join these institutions. And then if you think about you know, illiberalism, Rusty, I, you, know, you, you said earlier, a radicalization of the left prompts a radicalization of the right. When you have the rainbow banner hoisted as the banner of liberalism, of progress, when it's increasingly presented as the flag of America, you know, flown at our embassies, that's going to push some people to question liberalism, progressivism, progressivism, and even America at a deeper level. Now, the conclusions they draw may often be wrong as a matter of philosophy and imprudent as a matter of politics, but those questions are going to start being asked. And, and so again, in terms of you know, when, when people are talking about a liberalism, it's important to realize that it's not ginned up by a couple of irresponsible thinkers or you know, by you know, a, a youthful ferment on Twitter, it's, it's actually responding to broader changes in our culture. I, I agree. I mean, if I'm 25 years old, I'm a faithful Christian who just kind of increasingly convinced that I have to stand strong on male-female marriage. Wow. I mean, you're, you, you'd look at, you know, the, the Obama administration, you know, this is who we are. It's a kind of uh, Obama line, or that's not who we are, to, to be a dissenter from the gay rights agenda. Well, if it's not who we are, then it's, you're, you're a young person, then you would easily draw the conclusion that, well, Pat Deneen's right. You know, the American Republic is just founded on, on bad principles, and I need, to, I need to resist this regime rather than try to reform it. So I, I do think that... Uh, I think you're, it's very perceptive. Also, you point out that the, the left gets more extreme because the sort of moderate liberal, I mean, I think liberalism, establishment liberals have always have seen themselves as balancing between the right and the left. You know, we're the responsible folks. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, communists were liberals in a hurry. You can mock that. But the sentiment here is that they have some legitimate concerns. We need to answer them, but we also need to respect the need for continuity and people on the right need to be heard as well. But if you start driving conservatives out of any establishment institutions, the moderate liberals, they, they, have, no, they have no counterbalancing. The extreme left has no balancing right for the liberal to try to mediate and moderate. So it's not surprising that the president of Princeton at the end of the day always winds up acquiescing to the most extreme voices on the left. Yeah, there's a, you know, the popular cartoon of the, the, the man who you know, thinks of himself as a centrist, but as his you know, liberal friends keep shifting you know, farther and farther to the left, he soon appears to be a right-wing extremist. You know, I, I like to tell people, you know, you know, my, my more liberal friends, you know, be sure that you don't end up the rightmost person in the room because you know, a room defined by, you know, progressive ethics, an organization that seeks to be progressive, defines itself against the rightmost person. And as soon as you're the rightmost person, your your head is going to end up on the chopping block. So they they need to work harder than they've done to try to keep right-leaning people around. Now, why haven't they? Probably because there is a certain, you know, philosophical and instinctual kinship between people who think of themselves as more centrist liberals and people who are stronger progressives. So one question for these people who are 
more in the center who think of themselves as centrists as they see these social changes happening, they they need to decide, you know, am I am I just remaining a liberal or am I becoming something else? I think, you know, some neoconservatives, um, you know, in the sixties and seventies when there was another kind of upsurge in American radicalism and some people felt themselves inclining more to the right. Some continued to think of themselves as liberal centrists and some said, no, I, it's not just the culture that's shifted. I've decided I need to shift too in response to it. So that, that's a question they'll all have to answer. I think that's correct. You know, you look at your analysis would suggest that we should not be terribly sanguine. It's easy to look at the Stanford Law School uproar and over Kyle Duncan, Judge Kyle Duncan's visit. And the dean of the law school seems to have taken a strong stand. But I think your analysis suggests that mm, it's probably not going to endure that strong stand because the deeper dynamics are, are so powerful. I mean, could you be admitted to Stanford Law School if it was known that you opposed gay marriage? I doubt it. I doubt you would ex receive it acceptance. I, I'm not sure. I do think, you know, law schools as unhealthy as they are, there's there's one useful thing going on there, which is that they have to meet the needs of the federal judiciary and some, you know, and because there are Republican presidents and they oppose and they appoint conservative judges like Judge Duncan, law schools are in a certain contact with a broader political reality. So I'm, I think it it will make sense for someone to meet the need to produce conservative lawyers and that some some law schools are going to do that. So I'm a little I mean, you do see you know, law schools tend to have more ideologically diverse faculties than than university departments. So I'm a little more optimistic there. I mean what's what what's just most notable about the Judge Duncan case is the you know contempt for kind of principles of open exchange and academic freedom that are expressed by these young law students. And, you know, they're, they're very much in a hurry. They worry. I, I think, you know, these are people who feel that, you know, due process protections or other things have often been. Impediments to progress. Yeah. And a, a tool of injustice. You saw this notably, notably around Me Too, where, uh, you know, there, there was really a sense that older journalistic standards and legal standards needed to be thrown overboard. And that kind of activist spirit, I think, you know, it didn't, it didn't, some, you know, it's, it's distinct from gay marriage. It didn't, wasn't necessarily caused by it, but gay marriage did lead to a broader kind of loosening of the reins on activists. And uh, they're just big piles of money, you know, in things like the human rights campaign. And that, that money is going to find an outlet somewhere. It's going to sponsor some kind of cause. Your point about radicalization of the left prompting a radicalization of the right, I think in the, in the law school situation, it might manifest itself. I mean, or, originalism was a kind of way of signaling you're a social conservative without actually having to take a substantive stand. And I, I would imagine that there are young conservative law students that are now willing to just say flat out, you know, it we need to have jurisprudence that protects the unborn child. We need to have, we need to overturn a Burgefell on the, on the substantive principle that it's, it's, it's a, a, no just society can recognize marriage between a man and a man. I mean, I, it's imaginable to me 
that a young law student would take these more extreme right-wing views rather than the the moderating originalist proceduralist. So there's an anti-proceduralism on the right just as much as there is on the left in that sense. We just need to buck up and say that was bad law, and it's bad law because it's contrary to natural law. Yes, I, but I, I think that there would probably be a, a distinction between the two forms of anti-proceduralism. Let me explain what I mean. I think you know, for anyone on the right to be at all coherent, uh, his critique of proceduralism needs to be a critique of procedure overall, and short of, of procedure that isn't oriented toward any higher good. But surely, you know, someone who's you know on the right will generally be interested in in order, in individual justice, in 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 forms of you know formal as well as substantive justice, and therefore they will insist on the value of procedure, but simply say it can't be the highest good. You know, it it, it should be directed toward a higher good, but you can't therefore dispense with procedure. I mean, at least I I I think that that's what anyone on the right would have to coherently say. You know, and I think there's you know, an analogy probably between that and some of the kind of more kind of direct political expressions of radicalism you get on the right. I think there you know there may be analogies between the disaffected right today and the and the disaffected left of yesterday, but I I don't think there can really be a right that has any coherence or any legs at all unless it's able to be patriotic, you know, affirm, affirm it's affirm the country, affirm America in some sense. It, it won't be in the liberal sense. It may be denounced as unpatriotic or seen as traitorous, but there will have to be a real and actual patriotism there. Uh, otherwise, it just won't appeal to the kinds of people who might otherwise support the right. I want to kind of round out this discussion by by looking at the Compact Magazine project. It strikes me that the piece you wrote for us on gay marriage as an accelerant of polarization, it's a, it's a, we're, we're, we're in this fix. And it, I mean, isn't Compact a kind of left-right critique of the current regime, the current status quo that brought us to this? It's a paradoxical thing, right? You have to have, you have a left-right um, criticism, but it, it has the current regime. It's created a lot of dissatisfaction, it seems to me. So uh, we've obviously talked about the way in which uh, social conservatives dissatisfied with the, what I would call the Obergefell regime or the Rainbow Reich, as I sometimes say. And, but there are folks on the left that are also frustrated and exasperated. Is there hope for a, a kind of new consensus that emerges from a kind of left-right criticism of the status quo? A new, a, a new fusionism, although very different from the old kind. <laughs> from, from my perspective, you know, it's unlikely that there will be a new fusionism in, in the form of the, you know, in the way that term was understood in the conservative movement. You know, Frank Meyer, who employed that term, was he was really theorizing a practical political alliance that create that stood behind a political movement that reshaped the Republican Party. And through that means reshaped our politics. I don't think that people who are dissatisfied with our current order, as you say, are on the left and the right, are likely to unite in a coherent political movement that changes a single party that then changes our politics. Maybe that will happen. 
But another possibility or another way of looking at it might be something along the lines of, of a story Michael Lind has suggested, uh, one of our writers, one of Compact's writers. He's pointing out that you know, there was the neoliberal turn, that it wasn't pushed just by the right. It wasn't just you know Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. It was also supported by, so to speak, the left. And obviously people on the left will yowl at my use of that term, but you know, by people like Bill Clinton and David Cameron, who were the political expressions, you know, they were the politicians that the left in their time stood behind at least to some degree. So if we're if we're going to have a new turn in our politics, it, it's maybe more likely to come from slight reorientation coming from both sides. And those people on the two different sides will probably be talking together, talking to each other and sharing notes, but maybe won't form unified and coherent movements in the way that uh, fusionists really have sought to do within conservatism. Well, fair enough. But uh, the the leitmotif of your piece, or the or maybe the leitmotif's not the right word, sort of underlying dynamic is, and I think Chris Caldwell spells it out in his book, Age of Entitlement, it's anti-discrimination above all else. You know, that, or you use a notion of inclusion, uber alles, as a kind of notion, but you could, so it could be the case that there is a re, not to say that the country returns to older forms, but there's a kind of a left-right agreement that pushing anti-discrimination above all else under, I mean, I think Michael Lynn would say that that distracts attention from the more important project, which is to readjust the relation between economic class so that the people at the bottom get a higher share of the GDP than they have over the last two generations and people at the top have to pay more. I mean, put it crudely. And I think he's willing to downplay the anti-discrimination imperative in order to achieve that economic imperative. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I, I do think, you know, very important to our politics is, you know, the notion of inclusion um, and and the broader kind of regime of non-discrimination. We're, you know, we see an affirmative action case going before the, you know, the Supreme Court will rule on it this spring. If they strike down affirmative action, I, I'm sure that it will continue in a new form, but that may also signal a turn on the part of the American uh, center-right against a certain regime. And, and the American center-right up to this point has been pretty supportive of that regime. And it's not just the center-right, but more kind of center-left people are maybe becoming more skeptical of how how far this has gone. So we may begin to see some pushback on that. I think that that would be healthy, but we're also going, you know, at the same time we're seeing the kind of regime of inclusion accelerate elsewhere. You know, the Biden administration just announced what it billed as a compromise on Title IX and the issue of male athletes, especially competing in women's sports. And this compromise really wasn't that. It would effectively strike down, you know, 20 state laws that bar uh, male athletes competing in uh, women's sports. And and just say to schools, well, you can, at your own discretion, sometimes bar male athletes from competing if you're able to cite grounds of competitive fairness or safety. But those decisions would still be subject to administrative and judicial scrutiny. And it's not clear that the Title IX bureaucracy or the concerned judges would often side with the schools making, so to speak, exclusionary judgments. And so that, that regime is accelerating. And I mentioned 
Title IX because you know, we often think of it as something that exists to promote girls' sports, and thus the fact that it's being enlisted to support men competing in women's sports is seen as a contradiction of the meaning of Title IX or a subversion of what it's supposed to be doing. That may be true as a matter of the letter of the original law, but for decades, Title IX has actually not existed simply to promote women's sports. It has existed, and there are rulings from the concerned judges and from the administrative agencies that spell this out quite explicitly. It's existed to promote inclusion and also to break down sex stereotypes. And this is, you know, its purpose to break down sex stereotypes has been cited by the Biden administration in its justification for the Title IX so-called compromise. And in, in that way, the support for transgender athletes is perfectly consistent with what Title IX has been for many, many years. Just to illustrate the meaning of Title IX, why, why is it that Title IX guarantees, you know, or, you know, tends to support things like women's basketball, but not competitive cheerleading, right? Competitive cheerleading is not an NCAA recognized sport. And supporters of Title IX are opposed to it being one, even though it's very popular among a segment of female undergraduates. Well, competitive cheerleading is seen as reinforcing sex stereotypes, not as undermining them. So according to the logic of the people who really determine Title IX's meaning, it must not be supported by Title IX. Well, right, to the, the larger theme of your, of your piece, this does, not, this does not bode well for the future in the sense that, as you say, this is a, a radical left that wants to perpetuate a revolution and it's creating its own re counter-revolutionary resistance. Well, we'll see where we wind up at the end of the decade. Uh, it, everything feels very much up in the air right now, I must say, in spite of the fact that, as you point out, the inclusion agenda is like a juggernaut, hard to stop. Well, thanks for your, thanks for your piece for the magazine and, uh, and thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Rusty.